you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Daily Bluffs Nonpareil for February 15th, 2023. I'm Kaylin Sroka from Drake University. Here's our first story. Impact Grant Applications Open. Community Foundation Seeks 2023 Applicants. The Community Foundation for Western Iowa, formerly Potanawi County Community Foundation, has announced that its 2023 Community Impact Grant cycle is now open. Community Impact Grants range from $500 to $5,000 and are available to nonprofit organizations and governmental entities who are doing innovative and meaningful work throughout Potanawami County. Projects and programming must meet an identifiable need in the community and align with the Community Foundation's mission to improve the lives of all county residents. The Community Foundation utilizes an online grant grant center application system and through the platform, applicants can set up an organization account to create applications, save drafts, complete reports, and access their granting history. This year, we are particularly pleased to announce the opening of the Community Impact Grants for Application process. Donna Dostal, President and CEO of the Community Foundation, said in a press release, With the expansion last year of SHARE Iowa and an increased focus on building the capacity of our nonprofits in the county, we hope this granting session will bring out novel and innovative projects we've not seen in the past. Potawatomi County is also fortunate to benefit from programming and services designed to create true impact in our region. Every year, we are astonished by the projects our nonprofit organizations are working on to enhance our community, and we are excited to receive and review requests for this year's granting cycle. Grant applications should be submitted via the online portal by 11.59 p.m. on March 31st. The Foundation's Impact Grants Committee, a group of county residents and board members, We'll review applications in April and grant award recipients will be notified later this spring. Annually, impact grants are allocated to projects in a variety of focus areas, such as arts and culture, community betterment, community engagement, education, environment, health, human services, and youth. The application link and additional information is available on the Community Foundation's homepage at GiveWesternIowa.org. The Advocate Holidays on Main event is a past awardee of the Community Foundation for Western Iowa's Community Impact Grants. The 2023 grant application cycle is now open through March 31st. This story is accompanied with a picture of a man in a festive suit surrounded by children and their parents and or guardians. I think it's amazing that the Community Foundation for Western Iowa has these grants and hopefully they'll make many people happy in the coming 2023 year. On to the next story. Highway 30 collision continues 
four-lane push. Gazette lead Des Moines Bureau. Des Moines, Iowa, Iowa State Transportation Commission would be required to prioritize making Highway 30 four lanes under a bill advanced by a panel of state lawmakers. Senate Transportation Subcommittee Monday advanced to full committee Senate File 111 by Senate Chris Corner R. Lee Clare, which would require the state to make the entire length of Highway 30 four lanes, including a 40-mile stretch between DeWitt and Lisbon and between Carroll and Ogden in western Iowa. Economic developers business leaders, and government officials in Clinton County have advocated for the better part of two decades for the state to modify and expand Highway 30 between DeWitt and Lisbon to four lanes. Representatives with Grow Clinton County, which works to promote business growth in the region, told lawmakers such a project would spur rural business development, foster population growth, improve highway safety, lessen congestion on Interstate 30, and match the majority of Highway 30s across state footprint. Cornwall's district includes Clinton County. Instead of a four-lane layout, the Iowa Department of Transportation's five-year highway plan calls for changing the current two-lane layout of Highway 30 from Lisbon to Stanwood to a Super 2 configuration. That would enable the construction of wider lanes, a hard shoulder, and occasional turning and passing lanes. Construction is slated to occur in 2025 and 2026. Meanwhile, work is ongoing to finish four-lane construction in Benton County, which is slated to be completed by next year, according to the Department of Transportation. Stuart Anderson, Director of Transportation Development for the Iowa DOT said the DOT decided against a four-lane layout in favor of the Super 2 alternative due to cost savings. He said the DOT estimated it would cost 15 to 20 percent of the cost to upgrade to a four-lane highway and wouldn't require nearly as much property acquisition. DOT officials to doubt that expanding the highway to four lanes would on its own, spur an economic boom. I'm really just trying to keep this in front of the commission to make sure they understand how important the full four-lane Highway 30 is to rural parts of our state and what it can do for economic development. And in terms of taking pressure off I-80 and just helping move goods and people across the state in a safe way, Corner said. So I'm going to recommend passage so we can keep the conversation going. Next up, sometimes stressful but fun. 911 dispatcher highlighted as rewarding career at Citizens Police Academy by David Globitz. In 2022, the Potomac County Communications Center received more than 160,000 calls for service, dispatching law enforcement fire, and medical service to every corner of the county. It's always higher than people think, because you think of our county in Iowa as not being very busy. Training and Quality Assurance Coordinator Angela Dobes said during the February 9th 
Citizens Police Academy. But when your service area includes more than 90,000 residents spread across 950 square miles, the job can become a little hectic. In addition to serving Council Bluffs Police and Fire Departments, the County Sheriff's Office, the Communications Center, handles calls from the county's other 14 municipalities. The Communications Center's radio system is also patched into the different county school districts, public works, and animal control. When fully staffed, the Platonomy County Community Communications Center employs 28 911 de- dispatchers who work 12-hour shifts in four teams of seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Currently, the call center has 21 dispatchers with another three in various stages of training, which takes about six months to complete. You have your first week, which is all the HR stuff, Dobis said. After that, there's two weeks of classroom to learn all the computer systems before you get thrown out onto the floor. And then after that, it's on-the-job training. On-the-job training involves taking calls and dispatching services, first separately, then at the same time, though always with a supervisor monitoring how the trainee is doing. The multitasking involved with being a 911 dispatcher can be intimidating. Each dispatcher station can have as many as eight monitors going at one time. With the different phone and radio channels, call logs, status screens for the first responders, and the county CCT cameras. It's a lot of different information to process all at once. That means when someone calls 911, they get a dispatcher who answers, who may be taking their medical call for them and giving them medical instructions, but is also dispatching the Council Bluffs police officers to something completely unrelated, said Dobis, who has worked at the communication center for more than 20 years. It becomes really fun when you're taking a call, putting a call in for it to be dispatched by another console, and then you have an officer who kicks up a pursuit. Now you have to handle the pursuit while handling a phone call or the phone call has to be put on hold or somebody else could grab it if they can. Some dispatchers have gotten so good at monitoring the closed circuit cameras that they're able to relay local information in real time to officers who are in pursuit. Our dispatchers have gotten really fast at the cameras when they have an officer who kicks up pursuit. Dobas said, they're pulling up all the cameras in the area and can find the vehicle or even like a hit and run. They can see the vehicle and it's going. Okay, westbound Broadway through 21st and now it's 28. And they're just looking ahead and tracking these vehicles. Being a 911 dispatcher is always ranked at the top of most stressful job lists. And not everyone is cut out for that sort of work. But it's difficult to know that before the application is on the floor. Before a second interview, we require them to spend time at at least two hours in the center with a headset next to an operator in the room, Dobe said. Because we did run into, I mean, we had somebody who quit on day three. 
They said, this is not the job I thought it was. She thought it was more a call center and didn't have a full grasp of the dispatching parts. And she didn't even, and she hadn't even been on a call. But she had heard them taking calls and was like, I'm out. For every, anyone interested in career as a 911 dispatcher, Potomac County, County is hiring. They have four more spots to fill. Dobe said that anyone can visit the communication center and sit in on calls, which would be helpful before you begin the whole application process. We just have to run a background on you. Just a criminal history, Dobe said. Just run your name and make sure you don't have anything where we can't have you in the call center. For more information about the Potomac County Communication Center, visit sheriff.potomacpotcounty-ia.gov backslash divisions backslash communications This story is accompanied by a picture of Dobin's as well as an image of a 911 dispatch station at the Potomac County Communication Center. It's really amazing to see all the work that these 911 dispatchers put in to keep us safe on the day-to-day when we really need it. Next, Up Museum seeks community input. Listening session aims to keep Railroad Museum on track by Tim Johnson. The Union Pacific Railroad Museum is planning an extensive effort to gather public input on what people would like the museum to be like in the future. The museum will hold a community listening session on Saturday, February 25th from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the historic 1904 Carnegie Library that houses it at 200 Pearl Street in Council Bluffs. It will not be a formal meeting, but a drop-in style open house so people can stop and share their ideas with facilitators, then go on their way, according to Patricia Labounty, curator of the museum. Basically, this is an opportunity for the public to let us know what do you wish you'd see more of and what do you wish you'd see less of, she said. It's an opportunity to be heard and let us know what our community thinks we need to be doing. People can talk in person or fill out a paper form. This is part of a larger strategic visioning process at the Union Pacific Museum is involved in. This process will also include interviews, a survey of various kinds of stakeholders, and a board of directors retreat. Of course, not everything in the museum can be changed, Labounty said. America travels by rail. The Lincoln Collection and Building America are permanent galleries. Although Building America changes frequently to spotlight new innovations or different aspects of the railroad industry. However, the museum always has a temporary exhibit for those who want to see something new. The temporary exhibit is displayed for a year, then goes into a catalog of traveling exhibits that are available to other museums, she said. For example, the current temporary exhibit, Sun Valley, will be on display until shortly before this year's Railroad Days celebration in September, 
when a new temporary exhibit will open, Labounty said. Those temporary exhibits are a great little slice of railroad history, she said. Past exhibits included all set for the West, railroads, and other national parks. Move over, sir, women working on the railroad, and wheels of war. Individual displays are also added. Last year, the museum obtained a model of the original big boy locomotive while work with working whistle lights, whistles, and smoke machine that visitors can operate. Kids love it, Labonte said. The museum also offers online programs, school programs, temporary model railroad setups, occasional films or videos, and special events with hands-on activities. The bounty wonders if there are any barriers that keep people from visiting and whether they are, there are things they feel are missing. Would they like more hands-on activities or displays for children? Snacks? Drinks? A small cafe? No idea is too out of the box for this, she said. I'm excited to be able to do this right now, and I'm excited to see the community, what the community will say. Union Pacific opened its first museum in 1921, Labonte said, but during most of that history, Union Pacific Railroad Corp. operated its own museum, which was housed in the corporate headquarters building. When the museum opened in Council Bluffs, it was the first time it was operated by a nonprofit, the Union Pacific Museum Association, she said. In the nearly 20 years since then, hundreds of thousands of visitors have come through the doors from all 50 states and countries all over the world. The museum is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Admission is free, but donations are welcome. The museum currently offers a free History Express tour from 1.30 to 2.30 every Saturday. All of the museum is wheelchair accessible. This story is accompanied with a picture of a trolley called the Pork Trop in front of the Union Pacific Railroad Museum during railroad days from September 24th, 2022. Town Hall Meetings to Discuss Hunting Season Changes The Iowa Department of National, Natural Resources will host a town hall meeting on Thursday, February 23rd at 6.30 p.m. at the Council Bluffs Fish and Game Club at 531 Comanche Street to review the recently completed hunting and trapping seasons. The meeting will also highlight any possible changes to hunting and trapping rules and address other topics as requested. We want people to come out to these meetings, listen to the season's reviews, ask questions, and hear directly from our staff. Todd Bishop, chief of the Iowa DNR's Wildlife Bureau, said in a press release. Part of the meeting will be devoted to discussing potential rule changes and collecting feedback as we work through the rules process. The meetings are open to the public and com comments received by the Iowa DNR prior to proposing changes to hunting rules and regulations will be reviewed. Any proposed rules will be 
presented to the Natural Resource Commission during a regular public meeting for consideration and additional public comment. Matheson reappointed Potawatomi Conservation Board elects officers. The Potawatomi County Board of Supervisors has reappointed Jerry Madison of Council Bluffs to the Potawatomi County Conservation Board for a five-year term. The unanimous action was taken at the supervisors' meeting February 7th. At its most recent meeting, the Conservation Board elected board officers for 2023. They are Chris Ruhachek of Council Bluffs as president, Eric Hogg of Underwood as vice president, and Mathesis as secretary. Mathesis has served two years of unexpired term of a previous member on the board, which is dedicated to the conservation of natural resources while providing educational and recreational opportunities. Sincerely humbled to be reappointed by the Board of Supervisors to a full term, Matheny's said in a press release, I appreciate the confidence that the supervisors have in me and for entrusting me to help manage our significant local natural resources. Mark Shoemaker, executive director of Potanawi Conservation, cited the supervisor's recognition of Matthew's dedication to PCCB, including not missing any meetings in his two years so far and for his regular enthusiastic participation in many conservation events. Now before the midpoint break, let's look at the face of the day. Michelle Irons. Since 2017, Dance to the Beat has been an annual fundraiser sponsored by the Jenny Edmondson Foundation. Through the funds raised, assistance is provided to Methodist Jenny Edmondson's uninsured and underinsured cardiovascular patients who need help covering expenses for medication, treatments, transportation, deductibles, cardiac cardiac rehab, and everyday living expenses. Taxi Driver has been an ongoing partner in this event since the beginning. They have continued to entertain and make it an event that is not to be missed. Michelle Irons, the singer for Taxi Driver, has been with the band since 1996. The band started in 1991 and just celebrated their 30th anniversary last year. Michelle has been married to her husband, Al, for 25 years, and they are both in Taxi Driver together. You might recognize him as the keyboard player of the group. When Irons isn't performing, she can be found leading the nonprofit organization, Share My Smile. Irons and the rest of the Taxi Driver band believe the mission of Dance the Beat and hope to see you all this year. This year's Dance to the Beat is being held on Friday, February 17th from 7 to 11 p.m. To purchase your $30 Dance to the Beat ticket or to learn more, contact the Methodist Janine Jenny Edmondson Hospital Foundation at G-E-H-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org or by calling 
6040. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 15th, 2023. On IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind Imprint Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Caitlin Sroka from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Now for today's obituaries. George Kelly. George Francis Kelly was born on September 10th 1932 to Thomas and Luna Kelly on the family farm near Panama, Iowa. The family of nine moved to a farm east of Woodbine, Iowa, and George attended Prairie Slope Country School through eighth grade. He graduated from Woodbine High School in 1949. After high school, George farmed with his father until entering the U.S. Army where he proudly served in Korea. On June 29, 1955, George married the love of his life, Emmy Johansson. George and Emmy made their home in Council Bluffs, where they raised their three daughters, Cheryl Moores, Susan Sorensen, and Janet Chase. George retired from the USPS Omaha brand, main branch as superintendent of males. In retirement, he and Emmy enjoyed spending winters at their second home in Sun City, Arizona. George died on Sunday, February 12th, 2023 at Prairie Gate Assisted Living in Council Bluffs at the age of 90, five months and two days. George was preceded in death by his parents, sister, Opal Toxward and brothers Walter Earl and Alvin Healy. He is survived by his wife, Emmy, daughters Cheryl, Susan, and Janet, grandsons Matthew, Nicholas, Daniel, Christopher, Alex, and Jake. Five great grandchildren. Brother Donald Kelly, Sister Louis Schrader, and many other relatives and friends. A memorial service is Saturday, February 18th at 2 p.m. at Fotis Funeral Home in Woodbine, Iowa. Next is Judith L. Judy Milner. Judith L. Judy Milner age 82, of Council Bluffs, passed away February 12, 2023, at her home, surrounded by her loving family. Judy was born May 5, 1940, in Omaha, Nebraska, to the late Anais and Anna Murray Ward. She graduated from Omaha Mercy High School in 1958. Judy Merrill married Charles V. Miller on August 22, 1959, in Omaha. They were blessed with six children, 
Mary, Mark, Michael, Mark, Margaret, Daniel, and Charles. Judy worked as an administrative assistant at UNO for 11 years. She was a member of St. Patrick Catholic Church. In addition to her parents, Judy was preceded in death by her husband, Charles Milner, on November 25, 2005. Brothers Dan Ward, Tom Ward, and Mike Ward. Judy is survived by her daughters, Mary and Maggie Milner, both of Council Bluffs, sons, Michael, Mark, Dan, and, and Chuck. Thirteen grandchildren, fourteen great-grandchildren, brothers Joe, John, Jeff, and sister Mary Jean Ward, and many nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family is Thursday, 9 to 10 a.m. at St. Patrick Catholic Church. A memorial mass will follow at 10 a.m. in Memorial Park Cemetery with a lunch following at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorials are suggested to Humane Pet Services, LLC. Gary D. Knudsen, Gary D. Knudsen, age 76, passed away February 13, 2023, at the Hickory Villa in Omaha, Nebraska. Gary was born May 31, 1946, in Council Bluffs to George and Virginia Knudsen and attended Thomas Jefferson High School. Gary worked as a truck driver for Acme Cartage for many years, and his memberships included Eagles Club 104 and the Fishing Game Club. He's preceded in death by his father, George Knudsen, his mother, Virginia Lee, his dad who raised him, William Young, and stepdad, Ora Lee. Survivors include daughter, Lisa, and her sons, Martin, Antonio, and David. All daughter Robin and her children and grandchildren. Son Gary and his children. A very special niece, Janie. Sisters Carol Simpson. And several nieces and nephews and numerous family and friends. Visitation with the family will be on Saturday from 9 to 10.30 a.m., followed by a funeral service at 10.30 a.m., all at the Cutter O'Neill Mayor Woodring Funeral Home. Gary will be laid to rest at Cedar Lawn Cemetery with a luncheon to follow at Walnut Hill Reception Center. Flowers or memorials can be made to the family through the funeral home or address to Gary's daughter, Lisa Newell. The address for the funeral home is 545 Willow Avenue, Council Bluffs. Helen H. Roth. Helen H. Roth, age 101 of Council Bluffs, 
passed away February 13th, 2023 at Bethany Lutheran Home. Hound was born April 24th, 1921 in Otis, Colorado to the late George and Ruth Sellers. She graduated from Griswold, Iowa High School in 1939. Helen married Elmer Roth on January 27, 1940 in Maryville, Missouri. They were blessed with four daughters, Jean, Sherry, Karen, and Denise. Helen was a homemaker and a member of the Presbyterian faith. She was an avid pinnacle and pitch player. In addition to her parents, Helen was preceded in death by her husband, Elmer, in 2000, daughter, Jean, in 2007, granddaughters, Debbie, in 2006, and Tammy, in 2007, two sisters and seven brothers. Helen is survived by daughters, Sherry, Karen, Denise, six grandchildren, Jeff, Jamie, Tracy, Ellen, Jordana, and Marshall. 19 great-grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family is Thursday, 7 to 5 p.m. at Cutter O'Neill Mayor Woodring Bayless's Park Chapel. Funeral service is Friday, 10.30 a.m. at the funeral home. Intermet Cedar Lawn Cemetery with a lunch following at New Horizon Presbyterian Church, 30 Valley View Drive. The family will direct memorial contributions. Ronald Donald Stevens. Roger Donald Stevens passed on February 3, 2023, at the age of 78 and joined his beloved wife, Kathleen Stevens, who passed away on July 2, 2021. Roger was born on March 12, 1944, and the last-born child of Ronald and Al Stevens in Council Bluffs. Roger grew up with his older siblings, Gary, Philip, and Marilyn. He went to Abraham Lincoln High School and later worked at Methodist Janine Edmondson Hospital, where he became a respiratory therapist and met the love of his life, Kathy. In 1937, they got married at RLDS Church in Council Bluffs. In 1975, Roger and Kathy had their first child, Joshua, and moved to the small mountain town of Netherland, Colorado. They had three more children in Colorado, Hillary, Tristan, and Laurel. Roger worked at Boulder Community Hospital as a respiratory therapist alongside his wife, Kathy, a registered nurse where they both enjoyed providing care to their patients. He survived by his loving children, Joshua, Hillary, Tristan, Laurel, and older brother Philip Stevens, as well as numerous nieces and nephews. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hoy Skil- Ski Funeral Home, Friday, February 17, 2023. 
Funeral service will be held at 1 p.m. at Hoy Kilnowski Funeral Home, Saturday, February 18, 2023. The family will direct memorials. The funeral home's address is 1221 North 16, 16th Street, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Roberta J. Cowgill. Roberta J. Cowgill, age 87, was born June 23, 1935, to the late Herbert and Lucille Graybill in Council Bluffs. She passed away February 13, 2023, in Council Bluffs. Roberta was a graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School. She was a homemaker in McClellan, Iowa, raising her four ch- children. Roberta is preceded in death by parents, husband James, son James Jr., two brothers, and one sister. She is survived by her son, Harry, daughters Lori, Julie, brother Victor, eight grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and other loving family and friends. The service is this Friday, 10 a.m., at the Maurer Funeral Home. Intermit Cedar Lawn Cemetery visitation is Thursday, 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. The address for the funeral home is 121 South 7th Street, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Louise Guys. Louise Guys, age 98, passed away Monday, February 13, 2023. Louise was born on December 4, 1924, to the late Heinrich and Marie Geese in Kolstaw, Germany. She came to the United States in 1939 at the age of 15 with her parents and youngest sister to join other family members who had previously immigrated to the United States. Before joining her brother, Erich, to farm west of Underwood, Iowa, Louise worked in Selswig, Iowa, at the Swellswig Locker owned and operated by her sister and brother-in-law. In 2014, Louise moved from her farm to Harmony Court. Louise loved to garden and plant flowers. She enjoyed traveling and took several trips back to her homeland to visit family. Louise was the last surviving member of her immediate family, which consisted of six brothers and three sisters. She is survived by a host of relatives and friends. It was Louise's wish to only have a grave side service, which will be held at Cedar Lawn Cemetery Friday at 2 p.m. Family and friends to meet at Cutter O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel at 1.30 p.m. Friday for the cordage to the cemetery. Memorials are suggested to Arisa Care Hospice. The address for Cutter O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home and Crematory is 5 Four five Willow Ave in Council Bluffs.
Latuma Leticia Hansen. Latuma Leticia Hansen, aged 82, passed away February 10th, 2023. She married Robert Hanstein on March 25th, 2013 in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was a baseball fan, especially the Boston Red Sox. Latuma was preceded in death by her stepson, Kevin. She will miss be missed by her husband, Robert, stepson, Chris, stepdaughter, Andrea, grandchildren, Ellie, Miranda, Kayla, and Emily, among with other family and friends. Visitation with the family will be Friday, February 17, 2023, from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home, 1221 North 16th Street. In lieu of flowers, memorials are designated to Janine Edmondson Foundation or St. Crooks Hospice. My thoughts go out to the families and friends of everybody listed today. And everyone will be missed greatly. On to the sports for today, February 15th, 2023. Falcon Bowling returns to state, written by Austin Heinen. For the second consecutive year, the St. Albert Boys Bowling Team qualified for the state bowling tournament in Waterloo next week. The Falcons finished with a team score of 3,319 to claim the distinctive title for the second consecutive year, thus earning a trip back to the state tournament. Of course, no such feat was accomplished without moments of adversity, but coaches Mike Klutzman and Justin Penneke are proud of the guys for competing their way back to state. It's an amazing feeling, Falcons co-coach Mike Klutzman said. This was definitely not an easy journey. That Gilbert team is a very good team and hats off to that program. Somehow, some way, we were able to beat them. And it's a shame they won't be representing at State 2. That's a top five bowling program there, and we're very fortunate to come out on top. I couldn't be happier with my guys. It's amazing to officially make it back-to-back, Falcons co-coach Justin, Justin Penke said. This is a credit to the boys who are putting in all the hard work and dedication to the program and St. Albert and I'm very happy for them. Gilbert was the second place team with a score of 3,037. In addition to team qualifying, the Falcons also had three individuals qualify for state. Jackson Wigington was the individual district champion after bowling a 694 throughout three games. It feels amazing. I don't want I don't know what else to say or how else to describe it, Whittington said. It just feels really good. A lot of us were shot, shooting really well, but it's tough that they only take four. I wish all six of us could 
go individually because any of us could do it on any given day. At the runner-up spot was Cole Penke with a 680. And finally, Adam Denny earned the fourth and final spot to officially return to state to have a chance to defend his individual state title. However, the feeling was slightly bittersweet as his teammate who finished five pins behind him thus fell short of making the tournament. It feels good to earn a spot back, but it's also a bit solemn. Dunny said, obviously not everyone on our team can go, and I had to beat out my best friend by five pins for the spot. So there's something, there's some sentimental value that goes into it because you'd rather go to state with that person instead of them. Only the top four individuals qualify for the state tournament in Class 1A compared to the top eight qualifying in Classes 2A and 3A. With the state tournament appearance officially on the horizon, the Falcons go in with the same goal as last year. But after falling short in the fashion they did in the first round of the tournament, the Falcons are heading east with some extra motivation this time. It's really hard to get there, Klutzman said. It's even harder to win it. Still, we feel like we left a championship table last year, and our motivation all year has been to get back to the tournament and give ourselves a chance to redeem ourselves. I like our chances. It's still tough to win, but we're a chip in a chair, and we're one of eight teams that still have a chance. Last year definitely gives us some motivation, Penke added. If we have a better understanding of what we need to do better this year to overcome last year, I think this team can do big things next week. After leading the state in various numbers, the bowlers feel confident about heading over this time plan and plan to bring home the hardware. Obviously, last year we got the one seed and things happened and didn't go our way, Winnington said. It's definitely in our minds, but regardless of who gets the breaks, we're going to stay focused. This year, we're going to take it back. We're going to the state championship this year. 100% we're not going back to state just to lose in the first round again, Denny said. I can tell you that. We're not going to go and lose to someone we feel we shouldn't. I feel like we shouldn't lose. We've led the state in every category all year, and we deserve it. So we're going to work 100% in these next few practices, and it's going to be worth it. Notably, Tri-Center placed sixth in the district with a team score of 1,651. The Trojans' best bowler score was Matt Stoll with a score of 391. In Class 3A, Abraham Lincoln had three bowlers qualify for the individual state tournament next weekend. Bennett Olsen will return to state after finishing up the individual district runner-up. Also going back to state this year is Eric McCoy, who placed fifth overall as an individual, and Joshua Shelbin just squeaked in at the eighth and final place to earn a trip to Waterloo. The Lynx as a team finished in third place in their district with a team score of 2,902, thus barely missing the state tournament by one position. 
In Class 2A, Lewis Central had Caleb Hotwaller qualify as individual for state, and Kendall Bell qualified for Thomas Jefferson with a score of 680 through three games to finish as the district's runner-up. The state bowling tournaments will take place in Waterloo starting on Monday through Wednesday. The individual tournaments will take place at Maple Lanes Bowling Center, and team tournaments will take place at Cadillac XBC. See below for further state tournament details. Monday, February 20th, Class A1 team and Class 3A individuals will play. Tuesday, February 21st, Class 2A team and Class A1 individuals will play. And finally, Wednesday, February 22nd, Class 3A teams will play and Class 2A individuals will play. There are several photos tied to this article, one being of Kendall Bell representing Thomas Jefferson in the individual state tournament after finishing as a district runner-up holding a sign that says 2023 Class 2A Bowling State Qualifier in front of multiple bowling lanes. Also, there is Bennett Olson, Eric McCoy, and Joshua Shamblin all together in front of bowling lanes wearing blue AL shirts as they all finished as top eight individuals in their districts qualifying for Class 3A Individual Bowling State Tournament in Waterloo next week. Finally, the Falcon bowlers and coaches are proudly posing with the state qualifier banner, marking the second consecutive year for the Falcons to make the state tournament as a team, with all individuals standing in front of McCoy's Thunderbolt Lanes, holding a 2023 Class A1 Bowling State Qualifier banner. It's really amazing to see all these students achieve great success in bowling and I hope that they do great in the the state tournament next week. Next, Iowa's women basketball. Hawkeyes work to maintain tourney resume by Steve Batterson. More intriguing matchups may be on the horizon, but the only one that matters to the seventh ranked Iowa women's basketball team is the one right in front of it. The Hawkeyes host Wisconsin in a 6.30 p.m. game Wednesday at Carver Hawkeye Arena, and while the Badgers are 3-1 in Big Ten play, it's not a game Iowa can afford to look beyond. I think our team understands that, Coach Lisa Blunder said, Tuesday at her weekly news conference. One bad loss can take you out of a good position. At 20 and 5 on the season and 12 and 2 in conference play, Iowa has put itself in a good position. When the NCAA Division I Women's Basketball Committee held its top 16 reveal last week, the Hawkeyes filled the seventh overall spot in the tournament field and was one of the big, the five Big Ten teams to make the early cut. Iowa joined Indiana, Maryland, Michigan, and Ohio State in the early top 16, 
a fluid ranking reveal that will be updated on February 23rd prior to Selection Sunday on March 12th. With the regular season concluding with a road game at Nebraska on Saturday, followed by a Tuesday road game at Maryland and a home final on February 26th against Indiana, the Hawkeyes have their share of challenges remaining. That's among the reasons Blender said her veteran team must take care of business at home this week. She liked the way Iowa handled things Sunday on its way to a 111-76 to route of rudders and hopes to see the same approach against Wisconsin. I was so pleased with the way we came out against rudders that we... The way we started and the way we kept the intensity up the whole game, Blunder said. We need to do that type of effort and energy again. The Badgers are one of four opponents the Hawkeyes have put 100 points on the board against this season. Rooting Wisconsin 102-71 at the Kohl Center on December 4th. That seems like forever ago, Blunder said. They're coming in off a win over Minnesota in overtime, and while they're 3-11 in the conference, our team understands that record doesn't matter. Every game is important and counts the same. Blunder believes that Hawkeyes don't have a bad loss on the resume. In addition to its Big Ten losses at Indiana and Illinois, Teams with 24 and 19 wins on the records, the Hawkeyes' other losses have come against 6th ring Connecticut, North Carolina State, and at Kansas State. UConn is 22-4 on the season, North Carolina State is 17-8, and and Kansas State, which edged Iowa 84-83, is 14-11 on the year. I really don't feel like we have a Bad loss on our resume, Blunder said. The Kansas State game was early and on the road by one point. I don't think we've had a bad loss, and we want to keep it that way. The last article for the day is NBA announces All-Star Saturday Night Participants by Tim Reynolds. Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo is teaming up with his brothers once again on All-Star Saturday. Portland's Damian Lillard is taking a third shot at the three-point line. Indiana's Buddy Hild will aim to win that one again, and Philadelphia's Mac McClung can now be a slam-dunk champion at the NBA and high school levels. The NBA released the full list of participants for the All-Star Saturday events in Salt Lake City, the skills competition, the three-point contest, and the dunk contest. It'll be a particularly busy weekend for 11 players who are now slotted to be in multiple events during the three days of action in Utah. Three-point contest. Heald, the 2020 winner, is back to try to become the eighth player with multiple three-point crowns. He'll face his Indiana teammate, Therese Halberton, the Portland duo of Lillard and Antrophine Simons, Miami's Tyler Hero, Sacramento's Kevin Hooter, Utah's Lillard Mark Cannon, and Boston's Jason Tandem. 
Herder is one of four kings picked to be part of this weekend. It's exciting to be part of it and to represent the kings at All-Star Weekend, Herder said. We're off to a great start. We can't wait to see what this weekend is about, and then we can't wait to get back to work. Hero said he's eager to get to Salt Lake City. I'm excited. I'm going to try to win it, the heat guard said. I'm just going to be me, and I'll be good. Shoot or shoot. And Team Rooks is composed of number one pick, and that brings us to the end of today's reading for the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 15th, 2023. The non can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast, broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-404. Four seven four seven. I'm Caitlin Sroko from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening and have a great day.